Judge Joe Brown sentenced to five days in jail for drunk driving. Plans on appealing to Judge Judy in the People's Court. This is Touch Vision's It's All True podcast, powered by America's second favorite source for fake news, thewhiskeyjournal.com. I'm your host, Tim Barnes, and you just heard a fake news headline from comedian James Adomian. This is the show where I get amazing guests to reveal a headline for a funny, true story. This week, I talked to Chicago radio icon Richard Steele about the evolution of race relations in Chicago. I mean, it was, it was tense because... Those are the times. I mean, the, the, the whole area was in transition. And how he broke through as a radio disc jockey. So I'd get Ebony Magazine, and I'd read the ads like I was doing a radio commercial. But before we get to that, let's take a little trip down memory lane. Here are clips of the real deal Richard Steele doing what he does best, radio. WGCI. We play the hits. Richard Steele guest starring for the Fly Jock, Tom Joyner. Ain't no turkeys up in here. Happy Thanksgiving. Free music from Jody Watley on GCI. Hey, this is Richard Steele. Join me each Sunday afternoon for the Barbershop Show. Each week we ask journalists, activists, academics, and regular people to pull up a chair and talk about the issues that impact our community. Graduated on a Saturday. I started working on Monday. Okay, folks. <laughs> Everybody hear that? <laughs> the show is recorded live from Carter's Barbershop in Chicago's North Lawndale neighborhood. So join me for the Barbershop Show, Sundays at 3 p.m. on WBEZ Chicago. Richard Steele has been in the radio game for decades now. His voice is soothing, his thoughts are entertaining and insightful, and he always seems to be in cruise control. But one of the coolest things about him is that his name sounds like something from a Marvel comic book. Richard Steele. Being born with a name that awesome is too good to be true. And uh, between you and me, uh, it isn't true at all. Richard is my first name. When I got into radio, I thought my last name, I thought, was kind of awkward for radio. Uh, and I, so I said, what I, I wanted to keep the first name. I, this is what I did, literally. I went <laughs> through the phone book and all the S's because huh. I wanted to have the same initials. And uh, I just went down the line until I got to, I, there were a couple that were finalists. And I can't remember what the others are. But Richard Steele sounded right. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean it sounds like a superhero. Right. That's what they keep, that's what they tell me all the time. People said, oh, you know, that sounds like you know, somebody in the comic books. You know what I mean? Richard Steele. You know? So, but that's how I got it. I just went through the phone book. I went down the S's, you know, until I came across a couple that really I thought really fit. And Richard Steele sounded great. I said, I'll go with that. Uh, how, how did you get into the world of radio? Well, initially I wanted to do uh, – I wanted to sing. I, I sang with a doo-wop group in high school. And um, I'll tell you what happened initially. I was When I was in high school, uh, I, I loved basketball, but I was too short, didn't have a good game. I could play, but, um, you know, and so the next thing to getting the next area that would get you girls if you didn't play on the football team or the basketball team was to sing. <laughs> and I found that out, and I said, okay, that works. You know what I mean? So we used to we used to get together and harmonize in the lunchroom, and we were pretty good. And, uh, you Are know, you a tenor? 
I was the lead, yeah, first, second tenor, uh, and I, I led most of the songs only because we sang songs by a group called the Spaniels, and my vo- you know, my voice range was right in the range of the guy who did the lead singing. So <laughs> I sang, I, le- I did a lot of lead singing, which was cool because a lot of the girls went, uh, ooh, ooh, this, is, this, this, is, this is great. I'm interested in the logic of how that works. So you'd meet up with your friends, you'd go through rehearsal. Yeah, well, what we actually did initially was it was lunchtime, and we you know, we found out we all had an interest in doo-wops, and I've forgotten how we got together. I think we were all in, in the, in the uh, school choir, Okay. and we all got to be friends. One guy lived down, the bass singer lived down the blo- in the next block from where I lived, and we were best friends. And the other ones of us got together. Different people would get together to sing, but our five seemed to work out well. So we ended up being that group. And we sang at everything. We sang at pep rallies for the basketball and football games uh, when it was a big thing coming up. We were the first uh, group to be able to go through the halls of Hirsch High School a week before the Christmas holiday because it was a great echo in the hall. And the principal gave us permission to to do these doo-wop versions of Christmas things, you know. And uh, <laughs> and that was cool. Got us out of class for that week. And uh, and they left the doors open to the, you know, to the classrooms so that people could hear us uh, do our thing. We were, what made that unusual was that this was Hirsch High School, 1960, 1959, 1960. And that, the school was in transition racially. And the principal was very strict. And to allow that was just very unusual. We were like we were happening. It was like being on the basketball team. You know? <laughs> so, so, so back then, it was it, that was like revolutionary to be able to do a doo-wop version of a Christmas standard. Oh, at that school, yeah. Wow. Because you know, I think when I graduated from Hirsch, it was still uh, it was about fifty-five percent white, forty-five percent black, and it was in that transition period at that point. But they weren't. The principal was very strict, and so to do something like that was unusual. Like when they had. The annual wasn't called a talent show, but it was a, the annual review. Every ethnic group would – somebody from every ethnic group would do something on stage, you know, like, uh, you know, a Polish kid would play uh, the, you know, the, the uh, accordion, you know. And, I mean, it was – everything was very, very specific ethnic in terms of the, the kid out of the Spanish background, he would do, uh, you know, a bolero dance or something. You know? And so uh, it was like that. And I can't recall – uh, anybody from the African-American group doing anything specifically tied to being African-American. And then when we came along, though, we were like the big deal across the board. I mean, all, you know, all the students, white and black, thought this was, you know, this was, this was the end of the 50s. Five, four, three, two, one, lift off! imagine there was racial tension. Yeah, I mean, it was it was easing up at that point. Um, but I'll tell you what happened with us. When we graduated in June of 60, we had a very large class, so they didn't have the graduation at Hirsch. They had it at, um, at Calumet, which had not evolved <laughs> as much as, as Hirsch had. And um, even though school was out, I think at, when we went to our graduation... There was a stu- I can't remember whether or not or why there were students in the school when we went over to Calumet, but Calumet was still mostly white students, very few black students. And um, the, the atmosphere was very hostile. I mean, so 
after graduation, we could hardly wait to get our cap and gown off and get out of the school <laughs> because they kind of let us know in no uncertain terms. We really don't like you in our school. You but how, what was that like? What were the the signals? What were the cues of, of we don't like well, you? Well, it was that look like, uh, you know, like uh, those. <laughs> you know. So you could just feel it you in feel the air. It. It, was, it was, I mean, it was, it was tense because those are the times. I mean, the, the, the whole area was in transition at that point. And um, it was pretty tough. You're connecting the world with doo-wop. But all the kids liked that. I mean, the, the doo-wop thing was cool. And then as a lead singer, I got a lot of play. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, it was cool. And so how did how did that lead to radio? Well, the deal with that was <clears throat> I uh, – and this is something that's kind of unusual too. Most people who put things in their yearbook – I don't know if they still have yearbooks, but back then – People put stuff in the yearbook about, you know, like, what are, you, what are your plans? There's a thing about, there's a little piece about what your nickname is, uh, what your hobbies are, and then it was, what do you plan to be when you're a real adult? And a lot of people put stuff like, you know, the average stuff, I'd like to be a teacher or I'd like to be, uh, you know, I'd like to be a rocket scientist or whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> but behind my name, for some reason, and I didn't really have an idea about doing that, I had, I'd, I'd like to be a disc jockey. And... Uh, back in the day, I listened to radio and to disc jockeys. I was really into radio, listening to radio. But I used to listen to radio from the late 40s, early 50s, so I used to hear radio dramas. Oh, please. This is Marlowe. Oh, my name is Harvey Kettering, and I'm to be married in four hours at nine sharp. Oh, congratulations. I hope you'll be very happy. But my bride is gone. All kinds of Just things on the radio that weren't help. like, you know, the contemporary music shows that you think about now. And then later on I did as it got to be later in the 50s and I was older and the 60s, and I used to listen to a lot of jazz when I was in high school, too, on the radio. So I, at some point, I said, you know what, maybe I could do this. So I'd get Ebony Magazine, and I'd read the ads like I was doing a radio commercial, and I bought a tape recorder, and I put it, had it in the barracks, and I'd, I'd do my little practicing about these, uh, doing the reading these ads, and I'd let the fellas listen to it, and they would go, ha! <laughs> Yeah, right. You'll be a radio person. Right, sure. sure <laughs> do, you, sure. do you remember one of the ads or no, the style just, of the ad? Was... the ad? You know, ads in Ebony were, um, you know, for hair care products and some other things like that. And so I try to read with some, you know, some emphasis and style and all that. And um, that was that. So I did that, got out of the military after four years of, of service, went to a radio school. I was living in New York. I didn't come back here. Lived in Brooklyn. And after about two years of sending tapes out and trying to get hired— I got hired. But uh, what is the disc jockey sound like? What year was that when you really when I got tried into, to focus on Well, that? actually, when I did that, when I got into it, it was in 1968, you know. So it was um, – uh, I've got a tape around here somewhere with that, with that early sound. Oh, yeah. That's my man Joe Jackson, 1125 on the Great 95, where you can hear Ron Rogers get it together on the weekend, starting tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. It's All True is all about getting to know great artists and hearing their stories. In each episode, I ask my guests to tell a story that's funny, true, and personal. But before that, I need to know what the headline is. Headline. Um, recently, an 18-year-old trying to figure out how to get transportation to go to the prom turned out to almost not happen. <laughs> 
So uh, this is your problem. What year was that? 1960. The guy that uh, I was supposed to double with, he was going to get his father's car, right? His father had a big Buick, you know, big comfortable Buick, big back seats, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And so the deal with that is at the last minute, he and his dad fell out. They had a problem, uh, an issue. So he called me and said, dude, uh, I'm not going to be able to get the car because, you know, my father and I fell out. He's not going to let me use it. I'm like, oh, man. He said, can you ask your father? (laughs) I said, man. My father just bought a brand new 1960 Corvair. That was the car that had the engine in the back. You know what I mean? Uh, it brand new, but you have to rec- you have to remember that back in those days, 1950s, 1960s, when I came along, a black man in his car that was you know like was like that was like uh, an extension of himself, extension like of himself, and on a vacation to get in your car and be able to drive. Around. I mean, it was really you know, I mean, they placed a lot of value, and as well as they well should have, because they worked very hard to get the car. Engineers used all their know-how to make this 1960 Corvair the compact car that people could count on. But they didn't stop there. So to let you use his car, you know, that this is a brand new car. <laughs> so I said, Vic. I don't know if that's going to happen. You've got to try, man. Cause, uh, I said, okay, dude. All right. So I could not I could not even think about asking my father for that car. So I went to my mother and I said, Ma, here's the situation. You know, Vic, can, he, he lived in the next block. I love how we, cool you are. Hey, Ma, this is the situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, so I said, you know, you know, Vic, that's my best friend. Blah, 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 you know. I said, well, he, he can't use the car. And uh, so I was wondering, could you... Could you ask, you know, because I can't, I can't, I can't ask him. She said, oh, you know, that's his new car. Oh, man. I said, yeah. Okay, but can you ask him? You think you can ask him? So she's, I've kept, you know, asking her over and over again. And she said, okay, I'm going to ask him. So she got around to it and she did ask him. And uh, she, she, <laughs> she got back to me and she said, okay, your father's going to let you use the car. But if anything happens to that car, you've got to be really, really careful. So one of the things that happened on prom night is I went to uh, the Southern Lounge on 47th, Ramsey Lewis. You know, he's oh, playing, yeah. right? And, yeah. uh, and so I'm cool. I got my stuff on, you know, and <laughs> coming down. Parked on 47th Street. And so got out of the car, you know, and we go, we go in there and, we, and, it's, and everything's cool. When we get out, we're coming down the street back to where the car is parked. <clears throat> and the lady I was with said, somebody left their lights on. <laughs> I said, oh, <laughs> I had left the lights on the car, and so the car so it wouldn't start. So I had they had also my mother had given me the uh, the car the motor club car or whatever I think it was motor club at that point, yeah. and so I had to call and get and get a, a <laughs> and get a jump. And I'm like, oh, this is oh man, I hope he doesn't find this. I mean, he's going to find out at some point. I think yeah. it was on the but anyway, I got that happen. What's your date thinking this whole time? Well, she's she, she's. I mean, it's no she's big cool deal. You know, she's cool. You know, so uh, so I do that. Get the car started, and you know, we hang out some more. I go home, and the next day we go to the sand dunes, and uh, I, I'm I'm driving like this. I'm scared to death. I got both hands gripping the wheel. I'm saying, and 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 reality is that when that day was over, and I got back. And I turned. I gave my mother the. I took my tux back, and I took the girl home and turned the keys in. I gave the keys to my mother, and I was like, Phew. "The part that I didn't tell you is my mother had said when she first said that he said yes, she said if anything happens to that car, just keep on driving. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't even come. Don't even come back. Don't even come back." Uh, 
And do you know from 1960 to the day that he uh, passed away in 1990, we never ever discussed me having that we never did we <laughs> he, never he never knew or he, we, no he knew, he knew. okay he, but he never he asked oh, yeah. you know what i mean but but we never had that conversation <laughs> we never had that conversation so so when my son was about to graduate from high school he had heard this story because everybody in my family has heard this story you know so so he said uh and when he got ready to graduate he had a car because i think my mother had a had an old car and she gave to him when he was like uh, i think uh, a, a junior so but he wanted to use my car which was a newer car you know and so he he was kind of sheepishly asking me about, well, you know, I use your car. I said, yeah, well, you know, it's cool. I said, just, you know, you can use my car. Be, care- be careful. And he said, oh, he was so surprised. He said, well, I, why are you so surprised? I heard what you said about grandpa. You know what I mean? <laughs> I said, yeah, but that was back then, you know. And yeah, cars mean nothing now. Yeah, I mean, not like that, you know. So, <laughs> uh, but that's a true story. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That was great. And that's the show. Big thanks to Richard Steele for taking the time to talk to me. You can get more information about him at WBEZ.org and listen to his radio program, The Barbershop Show, from WBEZ and its sister station, Vocalo. It's All True is a production of Touch Vision. And for more info on intimate, people-centered stories about the world we live in, visit touchvision.com today. This episode of It's All True was originally produced at WBEZ Chicago with production help from Joe Dassault. If you dig the show, please subscribe to the It's All True podcast on iTunes and leave a review. My Twitter handle is TimBarnes451 and follow the show at All True Podcast. This is Tim Barnes signing off saying, I believe in you. Did you know there's a Richard Steele, uh, a guy who is a, uh, a fight referee? He- no, no. He was a referee for a lot of Muhammad Ali's fights. I mean, he, his name got to be pretty big. I interviewed him one time. <laughs> it, was, it was Richard Steele interviewing Richard Steele. And he told me that part of what would happen to him was like if he, he had some relatives here in Chicago. And he, when he would call, he said if he, back in the days when he'd get an operator. And uh, if the operator was black, a couple of times when he said Richard Steele, and they'd say, are you Richard Steele on the radio? He says, no, I'm not. You know? <laughs>